Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Today, I'm joined by one of the world's leading travel authors and journalists, Sophie Roberts. Formerly the editor-at-large of Condé Nast Traveller and Departures magazine, as well as a columnist at the Financial Times, Sophie's focus now is primarily on remote parts of the world, reporting on fragile cultures, wildlife conservation and threats to ecosystems. And she's just released her first book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia, which we'll come on to later. I hope this episode grabs you and transports you to the wild and wonderful ends of our planet. It's a long haul feature length episode and a love letter to travel, which will take you to some truly far flung locations from deepest Siberia and wild Papua New Guinea to the deserts of Chad and the lakes of Kashmir. I really hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Here's Sophie Roberts. Sophie Roberts, welcome to The Travel Diaries. How are you? I am feeling pretty good, actually. It's fantastic to be here with you. I caught you in a rare moment when you're actually here in the UK. Yes, um, I've obviously got a slight issue with staying still. um, (laughs) And I've just come back from Uzbekistan. Oh, wow. Which was really exciting, actually. I last went there uh, 20 years ago. And to see how much a country can change in such a short period of time is kind of, you know, it's one of the great rushes of travel, actually. So is it really opening up to tourism? Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, the politics have changed and uh, ish and the agenda has changed hugely. And there, what used to be a pretty closed state is now welcoming the money that comes from tourism with open arms. Mm. So the, the threat um, as a visitor is actually issues of over-tourism rather than... Yeah anything that more sinister than that because it's so unbelievably photogenic it is really photogenic and it is also one of those places that sort of sits on bucket lists um Mm -hmm. you know the kind of poetry and um uh, the evocative power of a word like samarkand brings people there whatever and Mm -hmm. um that now you've got direct flights from London, you have visa-free arrival. Next, in t- throughout 2020, they're introducing many more countries with visa-free arrival, so you can just show up and go. It's pretty extraordinary, and mm. it's inexpensive. I mean, it's really exciting. Over-tourism hasn't happened yet, but it's right on the edge, like so many of these fragile, exceptional places. Mm, that's interesting. Well, we'll come more onto that. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, first of all, I- I've been a fan of your travel writing for many years, and we we'd frankly need a whole series to cover all the places that you've traveled in your life. But I'm really looking forward to hearing some of the highlights. So let's begin with chapter one, and that is your earliest childhood travel memory. I didn't travel much as a child. My parents, we gave us a rural upbringing on the west coast of Scotland, and our playground was the big outdoors. Um, My father was a farmer. Mm -hmm. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot of extra cash for travel either. And at the time, and still now in many ways, it's, you know, it's a privilege and an expense. Yeah. But my first sort of really powerful memory was probably we were going to see my uncle in France and who lived in a house in the Gere. And it was 
incredibly exciting to me because of all the foreignness, um, including, I never forget, the 10 franc coin it was like heavier and a bit thicker and it just somehow felt so so exciting to mm. me i mean it's something as simple as a coin and yeah. then the, like i was uh, thinking about it you know an orangina it's all the simplest small things that stick in your head as a child that and feel exotic yeah, yeah incredibly yeah. it was just difference and the you know he lived a really romantic life uh, on a on a farm in in france with things that i related to to and things i just found um it, it had a, it had the house and his life was the sort of representation of a kind of maverick soul and i've always been drawn to that in the travel i've done ever since i suppose you know mm. he had i remember we used to he had a pet pig called hallelujah that we used to ride we had wow. uh, he smoked some turkeys for Christmas over the chimney which rotted rather than smoked you know it was just fun it was it was kind of mad and fun so that was one of my earliest travel memories and then the only other place we really went to as children was Ireland um, which of course when my friends see the photos from that time now they think I'm fibbing about the travel that I did back then because the beaches in Ireland and up on the west coast of Scotland if you get them on a, on a blazing sun, day of sunshine they can look like Barbados, mm. except there's no one on them. Yes. I mean, exceptional strands of whiteness. And, you know, the kids, in the, the images of us as children sort of playing, it, it might seem that we're somewhere like that. In fact, more often we were playing what my mother used to call warm rain. <laughs> so tell me about the West Coast of Scotland for a young child. I mean, what was it like? Tell me about the topography. Um, well, we were... Um, a we were a bit in Argyll. My father was fish farming, so we were right. where there was water. And then um, uh, latterly, we were in Dumfries and Galloway. And it was, you know, I remember a geography textbook when I was a child, and it said that the place where we ended up was a place called Ecclefechan in the borders, had the highest rainfall in the British Isles. I feel and have always felt um, happiest in places where there are few people. Right. Um, and I didn't realize how much that meant to me until I kind of got back into my late 20s, early 30s. You know, I had a period in London. I lived in New York for a while mm -hmm. and something was never quite right about that city life. And something was never quite right about my early years in journalism where I was, you know, the travel industry was kicking off. I was getting my first um, my first work. Um, the whole concept of boutique hotels were being born. Uh, the bucket lists were hitting the, the cover lines of every magazine. It was all very glamorous, infinity pools, all the rest of it. To me, I was wide eyed and excited by those ideas to begin with. But something also in me felt very hollow. It just didn't quite ever resonate with the person I really was and mm -hmm. hadn't understood until I got a bit older. And that was in my late 20s, early 30s. And I started to go back to those kind of wild spaces, which were, right. they were, they were printed somewhere deep in my soul as a child, I think. So that shift came in terms of where you would be looking to cover as a writer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you can write, you're a professional, you, you turn your eye to the reporting that has to be done. But actually, the things that move you that make the blood flow faster through your veins, are um, they have a, a, a deeper, more personal resonance. And that's when I think writing is at its most convincing. It's certainly mm -hmm. when I feel my most authentic. Yeah. And I, I started to fight for those kind of assignments and be drawn drawn to those kind of places um, after I'd been through a, a sort of period of correction, if you like. Mm. So going back, what got you into travel writing in the first place? 
I always wanted to be a journalist um, and I didn't necessarily want to be a travel um, journalist. Um, I didn't sort of know it existed, to be honest. I wanted to work more in conflict journalism. Um, and But the reality is I knew there were other things that were going to matter in my life, like a family. Um, and I also knew that I wasn't um, as politically motivated as some of the news reporters that were doing the kind of conflict work. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was very lucky because when I first went for my first job, um, it was Condé Nast Traveller was launching in the UK. And I started off as the tea maker, but it was a you know, it was a real opportunity. So I sort of fell into it by accident. If I'm really truly honest, I've always thought people were more compelling than places. I've discovered that character could drive a travel narrative like nothing else. Mm. You know, these people live, living extraordinary lives in ordinary places all the other way around. Um, but the combination of the two is what really started to excite me. Yeah. I like interviewing. It's <laughs> the people that make the places. Yeah, completely. Yeah, completely. Yeah. So chapter two is the first place that you fell in love with. What would that be? I fall in love incredibly easily, um, which is one of my problems, I think. But um, the <laughs> first place I was obsessed with was Russia. I went there um, just when it was the Soviet Union was falling apart. It was on a school trip. It was um, in tourist was looking after me and it was all heavily controlled, but also in, in, in free fall. And that I became obsessed by everything about the Cyrillic script, everything about this kind of dark, dark culture that had been heavily um, mythologized by my own Western culture. And then the actual interactions with everyday Russian people and how perception and reality can be two very different things that really truly obsessed me and has never left me um, there is something about that country that is completely unique and 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 real the first place I fell in love with in a more kind of upbeat um, uh, glorious days kind of way I suppose was India um, I loved it because in simple terms, I could afford it. I could go on for days and days and days and days and yeah. adventure on a very low budget. And I liked the poetry. I liked it's where it failed, where where it where it thrived. Um, I liked its mountains. I liked its desert. I liked its sea. It seemed to have everything. Where uh, did you go first? What was your first dip in that water? Um, it was. I stayed in Delhi, Old Town, and I just everything about the kind of noise and the chaos and you know all the all the cliches in fact and you know E.M. Forster said it best in Passage to India but all that chaos completely excited me um also as a female as a as a as a somebody traveling alone as a female India I felt very comfortable in mm -hmm. um for whatever reason but yeah. it's it I could I could travel and nosy around on my own at night in a way that mm, I felt different there than I did in other places. However wrong I may or may not have been, I felt comfortable there. Mm, is it somewhere you return to now? Less so. I found what's happened with um, India so rapid and fast. And it's great, you know, it's a country that has developed for the benefit of many, many more Indians than it did when I was there, when it was... Uh, the, the middle class was not nothing like as affluent as it is now. But as a traveller, some of the poetry has gone for sure. Right, because it's so overpopulated, yeah, busy. Yes, and I, I, in my personal opinion, it's it's tourism version is a pastiche of its real soul. 
I see what you mean. So, you know, the hotels are all kind of very polished and sort of um, want to look like a Maharaja's palace, but 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 aren't. Um, you used to be able to stay in those places for five, ten dollars and it, it might have been crumbling, it might have little rats running around in the night and but it had something that mm. wasn't processed in five hundred dollars a night. Well speaking of places that you fell in love with, I wondered where you would say is perhaps the most romantic place that you've travelled. It's funny, it would take me back to India. When I first met my husband. I met him when I was really young and we went to Kashmir together and we stayed on Dal Lake for six weeks in a houseboat. Um, Six weeks? Six weeks, yeah. It was incredible. And there was curfews running at the time. It was complete lockdown. There'd been some real trouble. Um, But it was, I don't know, it was like the Marie Celeste. Everyone had left and it, you know, while politically it was troubled, it was also extraordinary to be on that lake where there was no other tourists where the boats were sinking into the lily pads where you would just hear the kind of lonely paddle of an oarsman and no sound of motor cars no sound of outboard motors Um, that was really deeply romantic and as a destination it contrasts to other parts of India in a way Kashmir in the sense that how would you describe its uh, feel Kashmir, I mean, I've been back a couple of times since, but in those early days, it was, oh God, it was about 94, I think, by memory. Um, it was it, it was just like this place caught in time. It was, it's a lake cradled by mountains. It's a lake covered in lily pads. Uh, the houseboats are not just a touristic thing. You know, they, they, they have life and they have families. And it's a, it's a way of living. They do business, the market, everything on that lake. Um, so it feels like a sort of living piece of a culture that's very different to my own. You have the sound of the mosque on one side. You have um, other religions, which is so defining of India's spirit on the mm. other. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's just something about it that just grabbed me. Beautiful gardens the Persian Mughal influence and then you know within one of the great drives of the world is from um, uh, Srinagar the capital Kashmir over to uh, Leh in Ladakh um, which is truly stunning and that's another good reason for getting up there to do that drive out. Is that an easy thing to do as a tourist? Yeah it is yeah I mean uh, yeah you can do it a number of ways you can bus it you can you know take an Indian ambassador car if your budget will stretch to it it you mm-hmm. can do it on a motorbike um i've done it various different ways i love that drive oh, it's got real deep history magical. to it and very romantic yeah so chapter three then is the place where you learned the most about yourself i think probably russia i've been working there now for the last two or three years i've been working in remote siberia Um, Siberia being the bit of Russia that's defined by everything from the Ural Mountains all the way, in my book anyway, which is um, uh, all the way to the Pacific and the Far East. We should mention that you're about to bring out your new book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing a bit more about it. Well, it was a, um, it's an odd book. It's a curious book. It was a book that obsessed me. And essentially I've, I spent, been two three years looking for a piano in Siberia and that takes me on many adventures into odd and curious and compelling places but taking it back to your question is what 
have I learned most about myself or what taught me most about myself was that place. I learned the power of endurance, which I and the capacity to endure, which I, which was sometimes tough. You know, I was away from my family, um, sometimes up to three three weeks and more. Mm. Um, I was in extreme climates, um, which are not so problematic. I mean, a Siberian was the one that said it to me when she remarked that Siberia is a wardrobe problem. It's too hot in summer and too cold in winter. Yeah. So in other words, stop complaining, just dress right. Um, so uh, it, it taught me new depths of empathy. You know, some of the human stories in that part of the world are pretty extraordinary, what these people have endured. And um, that, to find and dig deep to find that empathy was something that I had to give extra space and time for. And the other thing that I learned about the act of travel is that you have to do that. You have to give it time and space. And in that part of the world, it is unbelievable. You knock on a door and you say, I'm looking for a piano. And almost every time they would welcome me there and then. It wouldn't be a case of coming back in two days or let me look at my schedule, let me check out who you are. None of that. Total trust, total deep and pure hospitality and a sense of time having a different pace and space having a different width and height than it does in our own culture where everything is compartmentalized into a diary slot, into a room, into a meeting, not in, in that part of Russia. How fascinating. Why were you actually looking for the piano? Tell me a bit more about the, this premise. Um, you have to read the book. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's true. I've got 80,000 get... <laughs> words to try and explain it. Um, but uh, I have, my family and I have spent a number of years um, in coming and going from Mongolia for other reasons. Right. And I became very friendly with a Mongolian concert pianist there. And she had no piano of her own. And uh, Siberia sits just over the border. And Mongolia and Russia have a close relationship. Yeah. And there was this extraordinary thing moment in Russia's history where piano mania obsessed the country and piano spread all the way through the old Tsarist empire and, in, and through the Soviet period. So I go looking for an instrument on, for, on her behalf. Fantastic. Uh, are you musical? No. Hey, so. <laughs> but I, music moves me. Yeah. I don't, um, I'm, not, um, I'm not trained in it. Just music moves me. It always has. And, um, and it was hearing her that sort of catapulted me into doing this whole thing. Siberia, for me, conjures up a pretty inhospitable environment. Can you paint a picture a little bit of the, the landscapes that you were traveling through in those times? Um, it's the scale. It's just huge. I mean, it has every landscape. You know, it's got the taiga, which is forest, which is vast, and billions and billions of silver birch trees, which are like skinny little matchsticks in winter. They're particularly um, uh, particularly beautiful. You know, it's silver on silver on white, and it's never-ending. And, you know, whether you're above them in a plane or you're beside them um, uh, on foot, it has a sort of sense of infinity, the taiga. Then you have the steppe landscape, which is the southern landscape where it sort of borders up to Mongolia, which is uh, dustier 
and it's um, for people who don't know what step means how would you describe it step lands are arid grasslands basically and they define Mongolia Um, they are hard to graze so they're largely fenceless Um, really really beautiful I mean I particularly love Russia in the winter which we can come back to and then the uh, the other landscape you have is the tundra which is permafrost so that is ground that's frozen year round or meant to be but obviously with climate change that's changing rapidly and Mm. that Arctic landscape is something else again Um, it's just you have mountains you have valleys that are it's the scale of the thing it's like Africa at its best under snow and Africa is a place I've worked a lot and there's a wonderful pilot that I've done a number of jobs with over the years and he's always said to me that wherever he lands somebody will always come out of the bush within uh, two minutes and we've had this running bet for years and every time it's true we think we're in the middle of nowhere and somebody will come out of the bush within Mm. two minutes and say hi in um, Siberia that doesn't happen it's a tiny population on a huge huge area it's 11th 11th of the world's land mass that's Inconceivable. Yeah, it's huge. And the same with Mongolia, right? Isn't it one of the least populated countries? It is. It's um, Mongolia is four times the size of Germany, and most of its population have now migrated into the capital, Ulaanbaatar. Um, yeah. And it's a big fenceless landscape. There's more horses than people. Um, so it's a, you know maybe it's the same feeling that I'm after, constantly kind of a search for this sort of feeling of being the only one there. <laughs> but um, Siberia's Siberia's landscape is is a spiritual landscape. There's no there's there's a reason why shamanism had and is regaining such a stronghold in the culture oh interesting and is that something that you participated in at all uh no funny enough i i've got uh, i've i'm quite superstitious about that sort of thing i don't know if that's the right word or i'm demeaning it by calling it superstition but when i was in Lake Baikal I was with my family they came in to join me for a couple of weeks and we were sleeping in this like five dollar a night kind of cabin on the side of the lake it was summer and I could hear this this extraordinary beat of drums and it was a shaman ceremony that was going on further up the beach the noise was traveling but it was it was the only sound you could hear this kind of deep thudding beat and um, I was aching to go and my interpreter said "Um, you mustn't because it's a ceremony for them and it's not for you, it's not for tourists. Um, Otherwise, it will bring some cursed bad luck on you. And of course, um, it was agony to me because I could hear it all night, kind of like aching, aching to want to be part of it. But I I never was. And did you ever hear what it was that they were doing? No, I mean, they have, you know, I've read a lot about it. I'm interested by it. Um, No, no, I Because of course, it's almost becoming that kind of practice as being moving into the mainstream arena in yeah i mean i think it's what is shamanism it's a if if there is a if nature um and our relationship with nature is exists on a plane that we haven't yet fully understood then yeah i think people are trying to hold on to it find it connect with it again mm. and so we should because we've cut those ties pretty pretty badly yeah absolutely Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels easier even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travelers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Chapter four is your all-time favorite destination. I always think this is my favorite question to ask. Where would you pick? My all-time favorite. Um, it's funny, I keep coming back to that kind of Altai Himalaya region, but um, Nepal probably. Um, I went there when I was 18, 19, and I fell in love with it. I, again, find it a relatively easy place to travel as a single woman. But I, uh, there's, a particular, there's a particular part of Nepal in the eastern Himalayas that um, is really dear to me. And it's this extraordinary house in the Solukumbu, which is an area that you begin some of the Everest treks. Right. And uh, Solukumbu, uh, there was a house there that Edmund Hillary used to stay in when he did his, um, made his ascents. And it was dear to him. And this house um, went, it belonged to a Nepali family. And during the troubles, um, this, it was unsafe for them to stay. And mm-hmm. this was during the Maoist rebellion. And they had to leave in a hurry. And this family left with $10,000 in a suitcase as refugees and ended up in New York. Mm-hmm. And in the that period, a German friend of mine um, looked after that house in the belief the Maoists wouldn't touch a foreigner. And it's a house where every single wall is painted by hand, like the Buddhist Thanka paintings. It's lit by candlelight. It has a roaring fire. It is the most beautiful house. And you can see, if you walk above it, which we sometimes do in the early mornings, you walk above it, you can, and sometimes camp, you can see Everest on a clear morning. It's mm. quite 
ex- exceptional. It's also a very, um, a very, uh, very holy, very sacred valley to that a particular strand of Tibetan Buddhism that's there. So um, it's called now the family have come back to look after this house again. It's safe for them to be there. So they left and now they've returned. They've just returned. Oh, how moving. Yeah, it is really moving. And the son has taken it on and it's, he's now opening up. It used to just be sort of people, sort of friends of friends and people that knew about it would stay. But now he's making it commercially available. It's called The Happy House, which was Edmund Hillary's name for it because it always made him happy. And it's a really, really exceptional place. So that's one of my favorites um maybe because it's got such a strong story and the other thing that's really amazing about it is next door to a hospital a very important hospital for the Solukumbu region you know during the earthquake it did amazing work it's got a maternity unit it's extraordinary and this hospital is heavily supported by the Edmund Hillary Foundation and all the rest of it and um so you sort of live side by side with 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 reality Mm -hmm. um which to me is really important I'm not a traveler that likes things to be fenced out or for me to be fenced in right so when I am going to move on to ask you about your favorite city do you have a favorite city or are you are they just not your thing no I love New York I'll always love New York I was a student there for a year um, I studied journalism in the states and in, in at Columbia and I lived um, uptown on 121st or something which was right on the edge of Harlem and it was rocking it was really exciting yeah um, uh, so New York I'll always, I will always love um, but I struggled more in London um, if I'm honest yeah um, maybe because I always knew that the English and Scottish countryside was closer to get to (laughs) so when you go back to New York now what do you what do you do where do you go do you have any favorite hangouts yeah I mean it's a real kind of high-low mix I love the um I love the glamour of New York I mean you know it's fun um I New York Public Library I adore that um I will always I mean I think it's probably very touristy now but there was a place called Sylvia's where I used to go on a Sunday after the um gospel services up in Harlem and it used to sell kind of southern chicken and I I don't know what it's like now but Sylvia's that's a cracking place I love your memory yeah yeah I mean New York you know it's got this incredible melting pot culture that just excites me. I feel like I'm I'm in the whole world in one street. Yeah, that sums it up so nicely. (laughs) And you've written about some of the best hotels in the world as well. I mean, you've been to these incredible remote destinations, but also to some incredible hotels. Is there one that stands out for you? Incredible hotels, there are so many and they compete now at such a high level. Um, for a number of years, I was a columnist for the FT Had to Spend It magazine, and it was all hotels. So I was kind of crowded by beautiful, exceptional, very expensive, grand five-star hotels. And I think I got, I think I, I, I lost perspective somehow on what makes a great hotel. Um, until I went to a place called Nihiwatu that sort of corrected me again. And Nihiwatu is in Sumba in Indonesia. And it is on the most exceptional beach, um, backed by forest. And the entire hotel was built originally as a passion project by a surfer who had discovered this amazing left-hand break. And this hotel called Nihiwatu um, it, it's now got a new owner, it's got a lot more expensive, but something about that place just kind of thrums on a different level. Um, it, it, you know, it's so connected with, 
the people in the land and the sea. And it makes me feel good when I feel tired. I went there when I was trying to finish the book to do some writing. They've got a little cottage on a bluff that has you know nothing no phone nothing and I I sat there for two weeks working looking over the sea and that Mm. that is a really from the sort of from the hotel universe that place has always excited me I've been there three times now sounds really restorative it is it is and then there's another place I just recently um, visited for the first time which is much closer to home a place called Trasiera in Andalusia and that again it's born of the same beginnings you know it's uh, somebody who is completely passionate who has has gone out on a limb to try and 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 stake their life in another place and and they've brought to it all the things they care about all their ethics all their principles and it kind of comes out and it's different from the corporate idea of a perfect hotel with a pillow menu it's completely different mm. and Trasiera is one of those places there are a few of them and I think they're becoming going to become more and more valuable um, the more powerful the corporate matrix becomes these private personal eccentric maverick places um, which are less um, uh, obsessed by trying to hit a certain price point trying to charge a certain cost will become really very valuable indeed We talked a little bit in the past about how, as travel writers, we can become a bit disconnected with the price points of hotels and luxury hotels. When do you think it is worth forking out when it comes to travel? As a travel writer, when I need to rest, you don't rest. It's a it's a big it's a big mistake to think that. um, Well, certainly, I think it's a big mistake by my experience to think that travel writing is a one big holiday. Um, It's really hard work. Do you find that people ask you all the time, "How was your holiday when you've been away?" I have done. I mean, they stopped on when I started doing lots of work in Siberia. But yeah, they have done, (laughs) and it's a it's really hard work, and the. I mean, some stories obviously more than others. And I think that there is a level of complicity between the travel journalism and the travel PR trade where um, the prices are kept at such a distance from us. Um, this is not true of all publications because some publications have a have a incognito um, a policy. You know, you're not allowed to take any freebie. You're not allowed mm. to take any reduction. But the vast majority do, and often it's on a comp complimentary stay and that complicity is really confusing because you you don't see value anymore and that's how the real customer sees it and it's why I think travel um, hotel writing travel writing has been hugely eroded in recent years um, because people who call themselves travel writers and myself included have been pushed off our, our pegs by TripAdvisor by everyday people taking these trips, paying for them and actually questioning value Mm -hmm. and delivery. And that citizen journalism has become really, really powerful and journalists have to raise their game and do more truth telling. Yeah. Do you go to publications or the internet for your own inspiration when it comes to travel? 
Um, well, as a journalist, I'm meant to be ahead of my, of, I'm meant to be ahead of my competitors, you know, I'm yeah. meant to be trying to find the next thing. So I don't actually, I, I, I tend to look at what my colleagues are doing and whatnot, but I also try to define myself against them um, mm -hmm. so that I'm not trying to repeat the same stuff. There's too many people traveling for too few good reasons. And so I have to keep ahead. And so I do that by my sources are, 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 are not journalists, they're travelers and like I've said the word before but the mavericks mm. so I try and sniff out the people that maybe don't have a PR or or are trying to go solo or are trying to do it without the power of great big marketing because that's when you need journalism absolutely and would you be able to let us in on any kind of tips that you see as a, a next big destination or a next big um, hotel for 2020 um I've I'm getting really cautious of the next big destination um, idea because I was reading, recently writing a piece for an American magazine about over-tourism and I had to really think about what I was contributing to as a journalist and creating footfall and um, creating attention and shining spotlights on places. And sometimes you can shine a spotlight, a spotlight on a place that can't handle it. It hasn't got the infrastructure. Mm. Um, you sometimes can shine a spotlight on a place for the wrong reasons. So I'm questioning, if I'm briefly honest, I'm questioning more and more and more about why I am getting on planes and writing about places. I have to, um, you know, I have to have a purpose to a flight. And while that sounds earnest, it's also really real. You know, I've got two kids that question my absence I've got two kids that question my contribution to climate change um, it's a different generation coming mm. through yeah. so when you say that um, ask me about what I think is going to be the next big destination I hope I hope it are those places that need tourism to contribute to their economy because it's a really powerful economy mm -hmm. and will raise more people out of situations that doesn't otherwise have a way out so uh, some of the places that I'm going to be working in is I'm um, Chad I've been there before uh, Papua New Guinea um, really really relevant tourism is powerful in these places mm. um, so those are two big ones for 2020, which are on my schedule. Interesting. And what is it about those two countries in particular that you think will appeal to um, intrepid travellers or travellers just generally? I think that um, Chad is um, Chad is a really, really uh, oddball, exciting destination. I've worked in the south in Zakuma, um, which is now I, I went in pretty early when they were trying to um, stabilise a national park that had a really interesting population population of elephants. Um, they did that really, really successfully. Um, the uh, NGO African Parks, um, I mean, it's an incredible success story about African conservation. They put in a brilliant, brilliant little low impact lodge. And now every, you know, people are going without fear of it being a kind of African badland. Um, the north of Chad is now getting some attention. They're trying to stabilize an area up there called the Anedi, which is like, a, it's, it's huge huge rock arches it's giant canyons it's it's camel trains it's a desert it's some of the oldest rock art in africa it's you it's it's got so much that needs protecting and it's got massive sense of adventure and it's a landscape that excites me mm. um and i think that the population is small but the benefits from tourism could be significant mm. so that's a good one yeah. um papua new guinea papua new guinea is bizarre i've worked there two or three times now and in papua new guinea you can go up i mean as an example the sepik river one of the main waterways through the through the country and 
every five miles you can encounter a different group of people who speak a different language. Um, so you can impact these communities which are quite um, isolated quite significantly through gentle, soft and responsible tourism. It's hard place. It's still working itself out with tourism. You know, there are elements of it which are still dangerous. Yeah. But there, it feels like a country that's got huge potential. I mean, the forest is, is divine, divine. Is it beautiful there? Oh, it's divine. Yeah. It's divine. I mean, I took my youngest son there about two years ago and he swam with a dugong and he came back out of the water and he said, um, I saw this and he described a dugong. And, um, What's a dugong? A dugong is like a sea cow. Oh my goodness. I mean... Like a manatee type. Like a manatee, yeah. Wow. And he, 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 you know, that was just on a little snorkel. It's kind of extraordinary. And the coral reef systems that I've seen down there are very, very healthy. And, you which know... Which is so rare. Which yeah. is so rare. So rare. And, you know, culturally, it's just, it's between the mountain people and the sea people like over on the Solomon Seaside. Mm. It's, it's, uh, uh, you've got volcanoes. It's got kind of everything um, in the logistics is still a mess trying to get between them, but it's got so much richness. Mm. I'm sold. <laughs> Chapter five is your hidden gem. What would that be? My hidden gem may be obvious to some of your listeners, but I discovered it about six weeks ago. Six weeks? Yeah. This is a very recent gem. <laughs> yeah. And it's really small. And it's really close to where I live because I live in the countryside in Dorset in the west of England. And it was on the north coast in Devon. And it's a place called Yotown. Yotown is amazing. Uh, it's like a, I think I did three days, four nights. And it's a, it's a place to recalibrate. You walk and walk and walk and walk and walk on the North Devon coast paths. You, the yoga, uh, really, really good vegan food. Uh, it was totally, deeply correcting for me, having been quite exhausted um, at the end of a book project. So is it a village? No, it's a little retreat centre. I t think they take about oh, 12, people, 12 people what, a week. And so it's in this restorative, wild place that obviously sounds like it resembles to, to somewhat yeah, of a degree your childhood. It's quite modest. It's quite humble. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a cottage with a sauna and the rooms are nice and a hot tub. And I mean, it's, it's just really, it really works if you're really burnt out. Yeah. And you're not a, you know, I don't spend my life in gyms. I don't have time to do, you know, I don't, I can barely get to a hairdresser. So um, to be able to have four days to myself in a place that really made me feel well, then Yotown is my hidden gem. And I guess also you've spent your career uncovering hidden gems because you travel to some of the most far-flung destinations. Yeah, and you know what? I think it's really important to go back to something we were talking about before. I could have tried to have sold Yotan as a story and got it for free. I didn't. I really wanted to spend my own hard-earned cash on something that was going to matter that was going to help where I could really repair and Yotown did that so it's a really genuine hidden gem it's mm -hmm. got no there is no complicity in that recommendation you yeah. know it really sorted me out and I've recommended it to friends I think it's about I mean it's not it's not cheap it was about two thousand pounds but I've recommended it to friends um you know people like me who have to save up for that kind of thing and it 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 really works and I was recommended by a friend 
and I am forever grateful to it because it was really good. Sounds like we could all do with a few nights in the O-Town. <laughs> yeah. I certainly could. So chapter six, um, in contrast, then, is the place that you'd never go back to. I was thinking about this and it always comes down to crowds, you know, Heathrow at Christmas, um, the Canary Islands, um, which is a really great pity because there are Canary Islands that are further flung that are spectacular. El Hierro is spectacular, but you have to go through hell to get there. Mm. And uh, Saint-Tropez in August, I, you know, I think to spend an hour and a half in a car to move five miles, I just, it's, it's, some of these places have gone. They've been shot by, sh- shot out by too many people. Mm. Um, I also have a funny relationship with places that have ghosts. I don't really like Mozambique. I felt that um, Mozambique, I felt the ghosts of civil war were still quite close to the surface. Mm. So I slept badly in Mozambique. Really? You you felt it? Yeah, you do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you do. I felt it. There's a house in Connemara, an island that my parents sometimes go to for the keen fishermen. You know, as I said at the beginning, my father was a fish farmer. So fishing's always been part of our lives. Yeah. I just could never sleep there. And then I discovered only recently that it was built um, near a grave of unbaptized children. You know, it's sort of, there are certain places that I think carry ghosts. Um, Definitely, uh, I worked in Colimar, um, which is one of the gulag zones in northern Siberia and the Russian Far East. And it's just, it's just you just feel the ghosts. Mm. I think anybody would. And the and people that are, ca- are still living probably carry those ghosts themselves to a um, degree. Yes and no. You know, the, the, certainly you encounter people that have a, a different feeling and a different relationship with those places. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a voracious reader and I sometimes carry the ideas with me before I've arrived. I carry too much preconception. Mm. Um, and But yeah, I'm kind of conscious of that kind of ghosts in the land if you like did you feel that in have you been to Rwanda yes I've not been but I just wondered if that would yes, be the same feel feeling it. yeah, yeah. It, Rwanda has so many different stories and um and what sits just below the surface is sometimes hard to catch but I went there I went to cover the anniversary of the genocide for the Financial Times and I was in an area called Akagera National Park, which had, was coming, you know, it's an incredible turnaround story again. You know, the, it's now got the big five having been a, an absolute bloodbath during mm-hmm. the genocide. Yeah. And I, I traveled through at a time when memories were very, were very um, present because it was that very week. And it was a reminder that as tourists we see a very very polished surface most of the the rest of the time because Mm -hmm. it was so deep and and profound and something that an outsider will never touch understand and is that okay as tourists well i think that these places have to be given a future rwanda has certainly got kind of this huge tourist 
tourism boom that is coming up now. Absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a tourism boom that's happening at the top end of the market. I yeah. slightly, you know, when a, it costs, I forget and we need to check this, but I think it's now 1500 US dollars an hour for the gorillas to be with the gorillas. It's huge. Oh, wow. So that's for a really certain market. Mm. Um, you know, the lodges are getting more and more expensive. It's a tiny country, a tiny country, which is one of the reasons the genocide happened. You know, it's a massive pressure on the land with, with a large amount of people. So the the I'm not convinced that tourism is percolating through society at large, but the benefits to the wildlife are proven. Um, the conservation success story is the I would wager the best in Africa right now. Um, right. And the optimism that that gives that country and the sense of an identity is 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 is. is is kind of electrifying mm. but it's there is a gloss that should never let us forget the darkness yeah of course chapter seven is your next big adventure how many have you got probably lined up <laughs> no. dozens um, so my next big adventure i'm working with um a brilliant photographer who's spent his career photographing uh, the Arctic and disappearing ice. And it's quite logistically difficult. And it is also particularly difficult because I'm not um, by any means um, an expert in remote regions where I have to be self-supported. You know, there's a very, very big difference between the kind of travel I do, which is um, taking measured risk with the help of professionals and the explorer types who go in solo and can pull themselves out of a melting Arctic Ocean. Yeah. Um, but I am I want to spend some time in 2020 and beyond um, trying to understand the moral maze of traveling to the poles and particularly up into the Arctic where this sea ice is disappearing very, very fast and where this great friend of mine is doing a really important piece of uh, piece of work. I can't quite square it yet about how I can contribute to that conversation as a writer responsibly in view of the fact that every flight is contributing to its demise. Yeah. So I want to try and understand how tourism is benefiting or otherwise indigenous people that rely on the Arctic. Mm -hmm. I want to try and understand the state of wildlife and if conservation tourism is contributing or otherwise to the, to the well-being of the Arctic. I want to try and understand if tourism should even be there. Right. So that is one of my big destinations for 2020 if I can work those questions out before I proceed. That's so interesting. I mean, with our current climate emergency, we're all trying to make a change. Right? There's obviously a noticeable societal shift when it comes to travel and the issues related to it. What advice would you give as a travel expert to people who, who do still want to see the world, but also want to be mindful of their environmental impact? I think it's really, really personal. And each trip you take, you have to measure it up according to your own, your own principles. So I don't judge others on it. I can only judge myself. And the, for me personally, I have to be able to perceive a benefit beyond my own um, satisfaction. 
in going to these places. So will it be the family with whom I stay? Will it be the um, publicity I'll be giving to some kind of um, issue or community that would benefit from that um, light? Um, Is there something in it that will bring my family um, a, a wider mind or a joyful memory that is beyond the simply the cyberitic, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's if it's pure indulgence for indulgence' sake, I think we can do that closer to home. And to cycle back to something we were talking about earlier, when you said one of you know was I think you were asking the hidden gem, Yotown. Uh, Yotown was a two-hour drive from where I lived. I had an assignment on the cards in Bali which probably would have given me the same sense of, of, you know, you know, burnout correction. And I made the choice and it was a really important choice to drive two hours rather than fly the other side of the world to Bali. And so it's those little decisions that I think um, for me personally, I'm going to try and make more and more. I'm going to try and travel for longer, more slowly than be kind of in out one night one night one night which i um, don't quite see the value of anymore i think we have to slow things down a bit yeah i completely agree finally then sophie we're on to chapter eight and that's what's at the top of your bucket list is there is there anywhere left for you to uncover oh there's so many places that i um have a huge huge burn to go to and um you know it's sometimes you want 10 lives don't you to see everything that this world has and a lot of it is forbidden lands i'm dying to go to socotra um the island of the yemen which is pretty fiendishly difficult to get to but it has um, an extraordinary ecosystem and some of the world's best diving and it's a sort of forgotten land really those sort of places excite me but Mm. on a more on a on a more accessible level um, I really want to travel the Mississippi I really want to travel the Mississippi on a slow boat on a really slow boat the friend that a a photographer friend who um is keen on doing that journey with me thought we should do it without any kind of power so I think it needs to float down the Mississippi which might take a while but uh I want to understand America yeah um my grandmother was an American I studied there and I have you know lived in New York for for a bit and I a lot of my work in journalism is published in America so I've kind of got connections with it but I have never understood beyond Manhattan and that is a bit of a shocker so I want to get out and take time and I think my kids are interested in it some good long road trips river trips however Mm -hmm. it comes sounds wonderful well thank you so much Sophie those for your travel diaries it's been such a pleasure thank you wow that was Sophie Roberts what a life she has led so far such a love for wild spaces and some food for thought for all of us when it comes to travel I think All the destinations mentioned by Sophie I've included in this episode's show notes and her new book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia, is out now. If you liked this episode, why not subscribe and get new episodes weekly? You can do that for free on all the podcast apps like Apple, Spotify and CastBox. And to find out who's on next week's show, come and find me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to speaking to you again next week. 
Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 